0: Thank you for listening to Stroke Busters, a podcast presented by the Institute for Stroke and Cerebrovascular Disease at UT Health Houston. The purpose of this podcast is to bring you the latest news and discussion in stroke care, research, community, and academia. I'm Amy Quinton, Communications Director for the Stroke Institute. We have another Grand Rounds follow-up interview for you today and a special one at that. Dr. Jared Chen has joined the Stroke Institute here at UT Health Houston, and we were so thankful not only for his time spent on his Grand Rounds presentation, but for sticking around for an in-depth look into his research and new faculty position. One of this year's Stroke Institute fellows, Muhammad Ralph, discussed intracerebral hemorrhage therapies with Dr. Chen, past, present, and future, and we hope you enjoy and share with colleagues. Let's dive right in.
1: Hi everyone. Uh, uh, welcome to another episode of Stroke Busters. Uh, this is Ralph Chaudhry, um, one of the Stroke Fellows here at UT Houston. Uh, today's uh, guest is Dr. Jared Chen. Um, he's a cerebrovascular and endovascular neurosurgeon here in UT Houston. Um, at uh, VPN L S. Smith Department of Neurosurgery at McGowan Medical School at UT Houston. Uh, Dr. Jared Chan is a fellowship trained neurosurgeon at UT Health Houston Neuroscience who specializes in neuroendovascular surgery, cerebrovascular surgery and neurocritical care. And he has clinical uh, interests in diseases that affect blood vessels of brain, spine and which include aneurysms, intravenous malformations, arteriovenous fistula stroke, carotid stenosis, subarachnoid hemorrhage intracerebral hemorrhage and venous sinus stenosis. Uh, so before, without any further delay, I would welcome Dr. Chen. Uh, Dr. Chen, uh, thank you for joining us for this uh, podcast.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for the uh, invitation.
1: So Dr. Chen, uh, first of all, I would like to ask you some questions about your uh, career, you know, early training. Uh, of can you please um, um, elaborate more about uh, how you got interested in your training in neurosurgery and your further training in neuroendovascular surgery and uh, cerebrovascular surgery and along with neurocritical care?
2: Yeah, so it, you know, initially when I was in uh, high school, uh, I've always wanted to do uh, something in uh, in the sciences, in biology, so you know I went to uh, UC Berkeley for my college and going in, uh, I wanted to do a PhD in uh, molecular and cell biology and that's what you know I majored in. I ended up working in the laboratory of uh, Doctor Randy Schekman, who uh, basically uh, discovered the kind of the intracellular uh, trafficking mechanism and, and he later on went on to win the Nobel Prize. But you know, um, I, I worked with a uh, graduate student when I was in the lab there. You know, I worked there for maybe about three and a half years. Um, you know, I you know it, it was interesting, but I just felt at the time it lacked kind of a human interaction and you know it lacked um, kind of. Uh, I wasn't really able to see the effects uh, the, or the impact on kind of uh, people in in what I'm working on. So you know, I looked into uh, going to medical school, and uh, I went across the bay to UCSF and shadowed some surgeons over there. Uh, and you know, I shadowed in cardiothoracic as well as uh, uh, medicine, and also in um, Neurosurgery and neurosurgery really uh, was the field that really uh, interested me. You know, I I worked with uh, Dr. Michael McDermott, who is now in uh, Florida, uh, but he, you know, he really got me interested in in the field. You know, the in, the surgeries were fascinating, and uh, I think most importantly, the research uh, is uh, is really uh, fascinating because there's compared to other fields, we we know less about the brain than any other organ. So I think, you know, at the time I thought there was a lot to learn uh, and still a lot to discover about the brain. Uh, So then, you know, I went to medical school at the University of Virginia and there, you know, worked with the uh, neurosurgery department doing a lot of clinical research and stayed on for uh, a residency there. Uh, and after that, uh, I did uh, a year of uh, fellowship training uh, in uh, cerebrovascular and as well as neurocritical care at uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, University a- in Philadelphia. You know uh, why why cerebrovascular? I think you know it's 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 a field uh, that is uh, very fast moving, and I, I really enjoy kind of the technical aspects and the innovative aspects of endovascular surgery. Uh, and also, you know, uh, I really enjoy uh, uh, the clinical research and the high level of uh, clinical trials that are performed uh, in, in vascular. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the, the field drew me, uh, drew me in.
1: Very well, uh, thank you for this uh, introduction. And uh, um, first of all, I'd like to congr- congratulate you about your, uh, I was reviewing your work. You have um, contributed a lot recently in the last few years towards the literature. And a f- few publications which uh, got my attention, uh, I would like to request you to kind of, if we can briefly discuss um, uh, them before we further go into um, further, like details. So the first one, which I really liked uh, would like you to discuss is this publication, which I recently pub- actually published in October 2022 in and the title is uh, Quantification of Hematoma and Perihematoma Edema Volumes in Intracerebral Hemorrhage Study um, design Considerations in Artificial Intelligence Validation Study. Uh, so it It was really interesting to me to see that how we can use the artificial intelligence to kind of help us uh, um, in determining this uh, hematoma uh, and perihematoma edema volumes. So can you please elaborate uh, more on it and um, what made you to uh, like uh, conduct these studies and what were your significant findings in this one?
2: Uh, yes, yeah, certainly. I can uh, talk a little bit about the study. So, uh, actually, the study is still, you know, ongoing right now. We're kind of uh, close to finishing, and hopefully, you know, by the end of the year, we'll have all the results in and have it analyzed and uh, be ready uh, to submit for publication. Uh, but you know, essentially, the study is really looking at uh, a an automated algorithm. Uh, that is able to, you know, automatically, automatically and uh, efficiently quantify uh, hematoma and edema volumes on CT scans of patients uh, presenting with ICH. Now, I have to say that the, uh, I, you know, I did not uh, write the algorithms myself. Uh, those were uh, written by uh, Natasha Ironside, who is currently a PGY4 at the University of Virginia. Uh, My role is more as a PI and kind of overseeing uh, the study. Um, So um, you know, the the algorithm uh, kind of uh, details of the algorithm are published also uh, in stroke uh, in the year or two uh, before this publication. So uh, there, there's one algorithm that quantifies hematoma and one algorithm that quantifies edema. And what we're doing is essentially comparing this, these algorithms to what's out there in the market, right? So, uh, you know, the, we compare it to a manual segmentation method, which we uh, deem as the gold standard and to, using slicer. Uh, that's NIH uh, software. And the other uh, is, uh, is is a is a software called Analyze Pro, uh, that's a semi-automated algorithm. So uh, based on the prior kind of internal validation study of the uh, of the automated fully automated algorithm, uh, they you know they were basically produced some very similar results but the automated algorithm is much, much faster. You know, was able to calculate the volumes uh, without any manual inputs in less than, you know, 30 seconds versus something like the manual or the um, semi-automated, which could take, you know, 20, 30 minutes to quantify a hematoma edema volume uh, on a CT scan. So we designed this study uh, basically as a uh, using equivalence uh, study design where we say, uh, you know, we predict that our algorithm would uh, would produce results that are within 7.5% of the result uh, that is produced by the manual method or the gold standard. So. Um, uh, you know, we have for so for each. Um, each scan, so there would be 252 scans uh, that are evaluated for uh, edema and also hematoma, and we have six uh, different raters for each, you know, uh, for each scan. So, uh, you know, I think uh, I think, you know, we should have the results by the end of the year and be ready uh, to publish sometime mid year uh, next year. Uh, you know, I don't know the results of the study so far because it's blinded. So uh, I, I'm not able to tell you uh, whether uh, whether we're gonna have a positive result or not. But I suspect that we will, uh, given how well the algorithm performed uh, in the uh, internal validation stage.
1: Very well, uh, so that is very interesting. And so what do you think that how it will uh, impact the, you know, Patient care outcomes, what potential benefits can come out of this your study?
2: Yeah, certainly Uh,
1: the study though. Sorry to interrupt you. We don't know the the exact results of the study, but what could be the potential benefits?
2: So I think you know currently uh, how we kind of calculate volume. If we're to do it efficiently, how we're calculating is you know by a you know a times B times C divided by two, right? That's how we're doing it. Uh, But you know uh, if we were to quantify volume accurately, say using a manual method, it takes 30 minutes, 20, 30 minutes, right? And the problem is when you are selecting patients uh, for clinical trial, you know, and you have a a lot of patients come presenting with ICH, that would require a, a lot of time, right? For either the, you know, the physician or the uh, clinical research coordinator to try to calculate that volume so in order to get an accurate volume and also efficiently uh, that may help you know in terms of patient selection in clinical trial I think this would be uh, very important and um, just a little bit of kind of um, uh, to let you know what's kind of down the road is that we are looking at algorithms that uh will be able to predict say hematoma expansion right and that will help select patients uh, who may benefit from either surgical intervention or hemostatic uh, therapy so this is kind of the uh the the, the basis that forms the foundation of what we are uh trying to develop uh later on down the road got it very nice and
1: uh, i wanted to request you if we can discuss another study which you um, uh, recently published is basically uh, the neuroprotective therapies uh, for spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage. Uh, it was published back in 2021. I think in August uh, 2021.
2: Yes, uh, so this was basically a, a, a kind of an overview of uh, kind of what's out there or what's been tried. Uh, in trying to uh, tackle uh, kind of secondary brain injury after ICH uh, and. Um, uh, this this kind of. Uh, you know, goes back to uh, when I was a resident at the University of Virginia, I uh, took on a, uh, a project to basically design a clinical trial looking at statins uh, in, in ICH patients. So you know, there's um, uh, there's data to suggest that statins, as an anti-inflammatory, can help reduce uh, you know the inflammation around the hematoma, uh, and therefore uh, reduce um, uh, uh, you know injury, brain secondary brain injury, and therefore improve the outcomes. So uh, you know, I. Basically assembled a uh, a uh, kind of mentor and advisor team, uh, including Dr. Sutherland, Karen Johnston, and Brad Whirl, uh, in in helping uh, design this clinical trial. So it was a uh, it was basically a uh, a trial using simvastatin, and um, you know using a futility analysis to see whether you know there could be some potential benefit in high dose. Simvastatin uh, for patients uh, presenting with ICH, um, and um, you know we worked uh, closely with the NIH StrokeNet uh, acute stroke working group to kind of put together a proposal. Uh, and unfortunately, you know at the uh, extramural science uh, uh, review stage, uh, the the project uh, or the proposal was put on hold. Uh, because of a competing trial uh, that was, you know, about to uh, uh, start recruiting. Uh, then that was the Saturn trial where basically they looked at whether uh, patients who were taking uh, statins already on presentation, uh, whether they should uh, stop uh, taking SEN or they should continue taking sand. And you know, the committee thought that maybe, uh, you know, the results of this study the Sin trial would uh, help inform uh, our uh, proposed trial. So that's why you know ours, our uh, proposal was put on hold at that point. Uh, but you know we looked at you know several other uh, um, uh, potential new uh, protective agents such as you know deferrosamine, uh, and also, you know uh, 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 nicotine, uh, and you know those are all potential agents.
1: Yes, and uh, very well, thank you. And other thing uh, so I, but as to best of my knowledge is that diphroxamine has been uh, evaluated in the clinical trials as a systemic therapy. So it has uh, there was some I think promising results from the clinic uh, like preclinical studies like, from the basic studies and and it could not translate into. Um, the clinical you know, side
2: to improve yes. the patient
1: outcome. Yes. So what, what are your thoughts about that? What could be the reasons?
2: Yes, uh, you are uh, you are correct. Uh, you know, deferosamine was uh, recently uh, looked at uh, in the IDeF trial uh, where they basically injected ICH, you know, infused ICH patients Uh, with defrosamine and you know uh, from their analysis, um, the conclusion was that uh, it's basically futile and that there's no, you know, there's no sufficient promise that it's going to lead to uh, outcome improvement in the phase three study. Now, uh, the study has several issues, uh, one of which was that, you know, during the actual um, trial, they had to uh, reduce the dose uh, of uh, of almost by half uh, because they've had a couple of patients with you know ARDS uh, and actually you know uh, uh, died from the from the uh, from the complication. Uh, so they, they had to go back to the drawing board and basically reduce uh, the dose by half in order to uh, proceed with the with the clinical trial. And, you know, the problem that stems from that is that, well, one, um, when you reduce the dose by half, is it actually reaching the minimum, you know, effective concentration around the hematoma or in the hematoma for it to actually have a beneficial effect? We don't know that, right? And um, And, you know, the thing is that, If you, you know, initially, if you're trying to, uh, uh, through systemic injection, you know, intravenous injection, uh, trying to achieve that minimum effective concentration, uh, then you're putting the patient at risk uh, for systemic toxicity, like what happened uh, here with IDEF trial. So, uh, you know, a a number of other uh, kind of approaches, uh, one of which is, you know, intranasal uh, delivery, and this has been looked at not in ICH patients, uh, or not in ICH, but uh, in in, in uh, ischemic stroke uh, preclinical models. And, you know, it shows that um, uh, deferosamine, you are able to achieve a much higher deferosamine concentration, you know, in the brain parenchyma compared to systemic delivery. So there are, uh, other ways you know of delivery to achieve. Uh, you know, high deferosamine concentration and also you know kind of avoid uh, avoid the systemic effects. And so that's what brought us to uh, kind of propose a, uh, a preclinical study of um, of direct uh, injection of deferosamine into the hematoma. Um, now, um, you know, this we think will, will be even better uh, than intranasal delivery because, you know, we are able to, uh, you know, directly deliver the drug into the hematoma, right? That, that kind of uh, circumvent the, the, the transport that is necessary from, you know, a little factory bulb to wherever the hematoma is. Now, uh, you know, we're in the process of, uh, uh, you know, grant writing uh, and, you know, we're looking at uh, an AHA grant uh, for, this, uh, for this study. Uh, but essentially, you know, first we're looking at uh, the safety of deferosamine in, in, in rodents uh, where we're, you know, we're planning to inject uh, deferosamine into just normal uh, rat brain. Uh, and try to find out what exactly uh, is the threshold in terms of toxicity. You know how low of a concentration or how high of a concentration can we, you know, can we use in our injection, right? And then, you know, then we'll look at. um, You know, what's the um, what's the concentration around uh, the hematoma we can achieve? uh and you know how much of that is getting into the into the bloodstream, into this in, uh, into the systemic circulation uh and then finally you know uh after we figured out uh after we figure out uh, what concentration is tolerated and you know either in the brain or systemically then we can look at well what's the minimum concentration that is needed to achieve you know, neuroprotective effects, you know, either, uh, you know, that we assess through uh, uh, immunohistochemistry as well as uh, behavioral tests uh, in rats.
1: Very nice. Well, it is a very interesting concept, and I must congratulate you on uh, like going, uh, like using the same concept, but being, uh, you know, very focal. Um, uh, in your approach. And yeah. uh, it's like, you know, and uh, so how far are you in this uh, submitting this grant? And uh, like, what are the potential timelines or like, you know, like if we can have any further?
2: Yeah. So, you know, um, the, we are probably around one month away from uh, grant submission. So we're just, putting together all the documents that are needed. Uh, and, you know, I'm working very closely with uh, De- Dr. Aronofsky and Savitz, uh, as well as uh, Dr. Green uh, from the uh, statistics side uh, to put this uh, grant together. And, you know, the goal really, you know, is to you know, hopefully have funding uh, by April next year. And it's a three year grant. So, you know, during that process uh, or during that work period, we will also be planning for, you know, second stage of the or the next phase of the uh, the overall uh, project where uh, we would want to translate this. um, uh, This approach to humans, you know, looking at safety and efficacy in, in humans. So, you know, that will be funded, you know, hopefully by a different grant mechanism, probably a K mechanism, uh, but, you know, obviously we'll have to see uh, what results we get uh, in in our preclinical stage.
1: Yeah, well, uh, yeah, it's very fascinating because uh, uh, that uh, difroxamine as a systemic therapy in the preclinical studies, uh, uh, have shown its benefits, and it failed in the as a systemic therapy because of the toxicity. Right. And uh, now re-evaluating the same concept and being more focal, I uh, I highly anticipate that uh, uh, I think uh, it will in the preclinical studies uh, it will show again the efficacy, and when it translates uh, likely into you know clinical trials to see the benefit on the patient's outcome. I think it will have likely will have positive results or like more promising results. Uh, Well, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Uh, Chen, for your time. It was uh, very nice to talk to you. Thank you Uh, very much. Would you like to add any uh, further points or any closing remarks? Um,
2: You know, I think, uh, you know, UT Houston uh, is a fantastic place. Uh, to, uh, for this kind of research, especially, you know, uh, of the clinical collaborations uh, that are available here, Uh, you know, and even in in terms of clinical trials, uh, there's the uh, uh, the clinical research curriculum that's offered by the medical school. That's fantastic. Uh, And also, you know, it's it's a it's a place where we have a lot of patient volume and that can help fuel uh, future clinical trials. So uh, I am very happy uh, to 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 come here for uh, for my faculty position.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Chet, for your time. Thank you. It. Thank
0: you. That concludes this episode of Stroke Busters. As always, ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and are not a substitute for expert medical advice. Always contact your doctor before starting any program or therapy to make sure you're getting the best care tailored to your unique situation. To stay up to date on UT Health Stroke, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at UT Health Stroke. To stay updated on upcoming episodes, share with colleagues, friends and family, discover the latest science, publication, and news. And don't forget to visit our website for more information, uth.edu forward slash stroke hyphen institute. Until next time, take care.